The title of uh, today's sermon is the Jerusalem Council. We're going to be looking at uh, the the first part of Acts chapter 15, where we get an account of the first uh, ecumenical council, the first time that the church got together as a body to resolve some basic issue in in the life of the church. Um, after the sermon, we are going to do uh, an affirmation of faith. We're going to be doing this every week. Uh, last Sunday, we did it for the first time. Uh, and we're using the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. There are different times in the life of the church when the church has taken a pause and gotten its smart people together to think about what it is that Scripture teaches and brought these things together in statements that are simple for regular people to understand. The Scriptures are large, the Scriptures are complicated, uh, but the, the church in its teaching function uh, explains what the, what the doctrine of the church is uh, in, in, in creeds and in confessions, um, uh, and this is often the work uh, of councils. You all, you all are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, a very basic statement of what Christians believe. We're going to be looking at the Heidelberg Catechism at the, at the end of this service. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in the 16th century. So this is during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Protestant Church is emerging out of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Protestant Church is asking itself, so what is it that the that the church has always taught on these really basic things, uh, and let's put them down on paper. So the Heidelberg Catechism uh, was written by Zacharias or Sinus. It was written for children. It was designed to teach children. It's laid out in 52 weeks, and the idea was that each Sunday, uh, a group of questions would be posed to the children, to the congregation, and that over the course of the year, you would get the basics of what it is that the church has always taught. Um, it's in your bullet, and you might want to find it. Uh, you can find it on a little sheet of paper. What you'll notice is it's set up as, as a series of questions and answers, and each of the answers has a number of scripture references. So, Anytime that the church gets together in a council to make some kind of statement, the purpose of the council is to reveal or to explain or to exegete what is present in Scripture. Okay, No council that's legitimate will ever say anything that's not already present in Scripture. Okay, And so in the teaching function of the church, in these catechisms, in these creeds, the church tries to state as simply as possible what uh, what the biblical doctrine is on, on different points. The uh, Heidelberg Catechism was adopted in the 16th century by the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, which is uh, sort of our cousin church um, theologically. Uh, the Presbyterians and the Dutch Reform are very similar in, in, in terms of their theology. They're different in terms of their ch- uh, church government. So these uh, church councils uh, involve the use of human argument and human reason, looking carefully at Scripture. You'll notice that the the proclamations or the statements of the church councils are not uh, from some individual on high or some prophet who's come through town, 
but it's really the gathered wisdom of the church together. The Jerusalem Council, which we're going to read about here in, in about two minutes, was the first of these councils. And there have been a series of councils down through history. Each time one of these councils happens, it's in response to some challenge in the community. Now, in, in, with the, with the ecumenical, the first ecumenical council, the Jerusalem council, the issue was, what are we gonna do with all of these pagans who've come, become Christians? How do, how do we uh, make that arrangement? And on what terms will they come into the church? So that is, uh, that's, that's, uh, the, the goal of, of that council. So, Paul and Barnabas, just to remind you of where we are, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Antioch, They've completed their one-year missionary journey. It's been the first missionary journey of the church. It's about 10 years after the resurrection. Paul and Barnabas have toured Cyprus and parts of Turkey. And after one year of church planting, they've returned to Antioch, which is their base city, the city that had sent them out. And they stay there uh, for a long time. Like the scripture is a little indefinite, but it's clear that they're in Antioch for a long time. And then the trouble begins. So let's take a look. You, you can find uh, our reading for you this morning uh, there in your bulletin. The, uh, if, if you want the ESV translation, it's in the pews. The, the, the Bibles are back in the pews. But I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then some men came to Antioch from Judea and began teaching the non-Jewish believers, you cannot be saved if you're not circumcised, as Moses taught us. Paul and Barnabas were against this teaching and argued with these men about it. So the group decided to send Paul, Barnabas, and some others to Jerusalem to talk more about this with the apostles and the elders. The church in Antioch helped them get ready to leave on their trip. The men went through the countries of Phoenicia, Samaria, where they told all about how the non-Jewish people had turned to the true God. This made all the believers very happy. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders and the whole church welcomed them. Paul, Barnabas, and the others told about all that God had done with them. Some of the believers in Jerusalem had belonged to the Pharisees. They stood up and said, The non-Jewish believers must be circumcised. We must tell them to obey the law of Moses. Then the apostles and the elders gathered to study this problem. After a long debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, I'm sure you remember what happened in the early days. God chose me from among you to tell the good news to those who were not Jewish. It was from me that they heard the good news and believed. God knows everyone, even their thoughts, and he accepted these non-Jewish people. He showed to us, he showed this to us by giving them the Holy Spirit, the same as he did to us. To God, these people are not different from us. When they believed, God made their hearts pure. So now, why are you putting a heavy burden around the necks of the non-Jewish followers of Jesus? Are you trying to make God angry? We and our fathers were not able to carry the burden. 
No, we believe that we and these people will be saved the same way by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the whole group became quiet. They listened while Paul and Barnabas told all about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the non-Jewish people. When they finished speaking, James said, My brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has told us how God showed his love for the non-Jewish people. For the first time, God accepted them and made them his people. The words of the prophets agree with this too. I will return after this. I will build David's house again. It has fallen down. I will build again the parts of the house that have been pulled down. I will make his house anew. Then the rest of the world will look for the Lord God. All those other nations who are my people too. The Lord said this. And he is the one who does all these things. All this has been known from the beginning of time. So we think... We should not make things hard for those who have turned to God from among the non-Jewish people. Instead, we should send a letter telling them only the things that they should not do. Don't eat food that has been given to idols. This makes the food unclean. Don't be involved in sexual sin. Don't eat meat from animals that have been strangled or any meat that still has the blood in it. They should not do any of these things because they are still men in every city who teach the law of Moses. The words of Moses have been read in the synagogue every Sabbath for many years. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, I ask that you be present with us as we uh, proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that you would guard my heart and my lips, and I pray that you would open our hearts to receive uh, the truth, uh, the unchanging truth of what it is uh, that you have written. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, at the beginning of this passage in Acts 15.1, some men come from Antioch, and uh, they, they uh, some people, some men come from Judea, from the Jewish uh, country, up to Antioch, which is a pagan land. And they begin teaching these new Christians who had come out of pagan religion. They begin teaching them, you cannot be saved if you're not circumcised. Now, the most important question we can ask is, what must I do to be saved? All right, that's that's the foundational question. That's the one we got to get straight on. In a certain sense, everything else is just uh, icing on the cake. We need to figure out what we must do to be saved. And according to these Christians, these Jewish Christians, you wouldn't be saved unless you had been circumcised and were following all of the law of Moses. And this dispute then arises in the church there in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas had planted that church. Uh, they uh, were had been teaching in that church, people had been converted, but they were not circumcising the converts, okay? Now, if you had uh, converted to Judaism, if, if you had gone from being a pagan to being a Jew, you would be required to be circumcised if you were a male in order to enter into that uh, into that community. But uh, the practice of Paul and Barnabas was to not circumcise uh, the pagans who were becoming Christians. And so this conflict arises. Now, 
the, the Pharisees seem to be the party that are driving uh, this demand for circumcision. Uh, Paul himself was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were, uh, in a sense, the Pharisees were the evangelicals of the ancient Jewish world. These were people who were uh, on fire for God and they were trying to follow God's law as carefully as possible. They were very earnest uh, in what they were doing. They believed in the resurrection. Um, and many Pharisees did become did become Christians. The in- insistence by these Pharisees that these new Christians be circumcised then becomes this point of contention. So a, a party is sent out. Now, why is it that if there's a dispute within the church, that the church feels that it must resolve the dispute? Why not just split into two churches that, you know, do it two different ways? One of the things that we say about the church is is that it's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The church is one church. There are not two churches. There are not 39 churches. There are a lot of denominations, but Christians are united in one belief. And at this early stage uh, in the life of the church, there is uh, a clear understanding that all of the parts of the church must be unified in what it is that they believe. And so uh, a conflict has arisen and they're not content to allow the conflict to sit there or to simply go different ways and, well, you know, you're going to do it your way and I'm going to do it my way. This was an essential issue for them. It was an issue about salvation. Okay, and that's that's what defines an essential issue. If an issue in church life is not about salvation, it's not essential. Okay, so uh, in the in the evangelical Presbyterian Church, um, we say that there must be unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and grace in all things. So, for example, the style of music that you use that has nothing to do with your salvation, and so we permit anything with regard to that. But with regard to the things that are essential to salvation. We have to be, we have to be unified. And so, uh, a, 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 a party is sent off to Jerusalem to begin to deal, uh, with this matter. Now you'll notice that when they get to Jerusalem, the apostles are gathered there. Paul and Barnabas have gone off and are preaching in, in a faraway land, but the rest, the, 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 the twelve apostles are still in Jerusalem. Okay, the church is centered uh, in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of the church in Jerusalem, and so there's this recognition that there is some kind of uh, primary authority in that body, and that we who are out on the fringes need to come back to the center and consult together and and resolve this matter. And so they go back to Jerusalem, where the apostles uh, and the elders are present, but the whole of the a body of the church is present in this disputation. Everybody gathers together. And we get little snippets of what the debate was like. So the Pharisees would have presented their point of view and uh, 
these uh, evangelists were preventing, uh, presenting their point of view. Uh, Peter talks about his uh, experience. You remember back in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter has gone off and met Cornelius. So this is the, Cornelius was the, is the first uh, pagan convert to Christianity. And you remember before that happens, uh, Peter has this vision of the sheet coming out of heaven full of all kinds of unclean animals. And a voice from heaven declares that these things are clean. So God's revelation to him that the ceremonial law of Moses had been put aside. Okay? Uh, and, and so he then uh, converts uh, and baptizes Cornelius. Paul, of course, was fully involved uh, in, in uh, proselytizing uh, uh, pagans as well. Verse 12. Then the whole group became quiet they listened while paul and barnabas told all about the miraculous signs and wonders that god had done through them among the non-jewish people i don't know how many people were gathered together my guess is it was a rather large number hundreds a thousand people gathered together a lot of people were gathered together to hear this testimony it would be interesting to know how long this conference went on in other times in, in church history, when, when these ecumenical councils came together, they would meet over the course uh, of weeks or, or months where they would talk about the, the issues of the day and come to some kind of reasoned uh, response to this new situation, reasoned in light of what it is that Scripture has given. Now, in the end, uh, and, and by the way, next week we're going to, pick up, uh, there'll be some repetition next week of what we read this week, where we'll get the letter that was sent to, to the people back in Antioch. But the decision is to uh, not burden the non-Jewish people with the ceremonial law of Moses. Okay. Now, uh, there, there's sometimes confusion in the Christian community about what the function of the law is. Uh, in the Old Testament, God gives a law to his people at Mount Sinai. There are 631 laws contained uh, in the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments are part of that. Um, and when the Reformers were thinking about uh, this in the 16th century, they saw and identified three different categories of laws that are part of the law of Moses. One part of the law of Moses is what we call the ceremonial law. So there were rules about how the temple should be furnished. There were rules about uh, what kind of clothes the priest should wear. Uh, there were rules uh, uh, about cleanliness. Um, and uh, what we see clearly in the New Testament is that the ceremonial law is set aside. The reformers asked the question, well, well, then what was the purpose of the ceremonial law? And uh, their understanding was is that it was a preparation, it was a sign of uh, more fundamental truths that would be revealed in Jesus Christ. So the ceremonial law, which involves also, by the way, the dietary laws, are set aside for Christians. That's one category of the law. A second category of the law is civil law. So, you know, here in, in Lower Moreland uh, Township, there are laws about 
uh, you know, how fast you can drive and, and what kind of signs you can put out on the street. And those are laws of the civil government. And uh, part of the law of Moses is a civil law. Uh, th- that law was designed for the new kingdom of Israel. Okay, And it, it was the law in the land, and there were judges who would judge according to that law. We as Christians, we live uh, in other societies that have other uh, civil law. Uh, sometimes the civil law of a society will be based on a biblical model. Uh, you know, the, the, the Bible uh, prohibits murder, for example. It is also uh, illegal to murder somebody uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and so there are times when the civil law of a place adopts the civil law uh, of Scripture. But... Uh, the understanding is, is that that law, uh, among the reformers, the understanding is, is that that law applies to the kingdom of Israel. That leaves a third set of laws, which are called the moral laws. So the moral laws are laws of God which are true in all times and in all places, in all circumstances. They apply to you whether or not you realize it, and they remain true. So for Christians, we continue to, to uh, hold to the moral law that's embedded in the law of Moses, even though the civil law has been replaced by the laws of our state um, and the ceremonial laws have been uh, entirely replaced uh, as well. So in this coming together in the Council of Jerusalem... There is an analysis going on here of what part of the Old Testament law continues to apply in the Christian world. It's clear that uh, under the law of Moses, to be a Jew, you needed to be circumcised. Does that apply now to the Christians? This is the question that they're asking. It's important to remember that the family of God, that the body of Christ... That those who are in the sheepfold is always a defined group. The nation of God is always distinguished from the other nations. Okay, The body of Christ is distinguished from that, that which is not the body of Christ. Those who are in the sheepfold are distinguished from those who are outside of the sheepfold. The body always has a boundary... And what's being asked here is, what are the boundaries? What boundaries must be recognized to be inside? What must I do to be inside? What must I do to be saved? What must I do in order to be within the body of Christ? And this is the question that they that they are wrestling with. And they come up with uh, three rules. These are going to be explained a little further next week. Number one, don't eat food that's been given to idols. This makes the food unclean. Number two, don't be involved in sexual sin. Number three, don't eat meat from animals that have been strangled or any meat that still has has blood in it. Okay. So the council of Jerusalem identifies these three as boundary markers for the church. These three, by the way, also were boundary markers for the synagogue before. They were boundary markers for the, for the people of God, for the nation of Israel before. But they continue to be boundary markers for the people of God um, uh, in the Christian era as well. So this morning, I just want to lift up the, the middle one, do not be involved uh, in sexual sin. And I want to take a look at how this uh, boundary marker is talked about in in other places 
uh, in Scripture as well. So the word in Greek that's being used there for sexual sin is the is the is the the same word where we get the word pornography. Okay, uh, I'm going to read some other passages, and you'll see that there are a number of different words for kind of different sexual practices or sexual deviances. But there's a there's a kind of an umbrella term or uh, uh, that embraces all of these. Uh, the the word in Greek is porneos, um, and this is the this is where we get the word uh, pornography. So. Do not be involved in porneos is, is what's being uh, offered here as, a, as an umbrella as an umbrella term. To be in the body of Christ is to not be involved in sexual sin. So let's take a look at uh, uh, how this uh, shakes out in other parts uh, of the New Testament. I'm not going to look at the Old Testament passages uh, uh, today, but we could do that at another time. I just want to take a look at the New Testament. If you want to pull your Bibles out, uh, for those of you who uh, like to see the word and not just hear it, uh, I will read off these passages. So first um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Now in this passage, we get several different words uh, for sexual sins. And it reads this way, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so this is where it begins. Um, To not inherit the kingdom of God is another way of saying to not be saved, to be outside of the body of Christ, to be excluded from the family of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Now, You'll notice that every time that the scriptures say do not do something, it's saying that because some people are. There are people who are being deceived. And so scripture has to say do not be deceived. Sometimes scripture commands us to do things. It commands us to do things because we're not doing them. Okay? So the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not be saved. Do not be deceived. Some of you are. Neither the sexually immoral... And there the, there's the word porneos, that, that's the umbrella term. Nor idolaters, okay, people worshiping idols. Nor adulterers, okay, so adulterers is a smaller category. This would be married people who are having sex with people that they're not married to. Nor men who practice homosexuality. And then there in the Greek text, there are actually two terms, uh, that are available in Greek, to be blunt about it, it's to be a top or to be a bottom. Okay, so scripture specifies that both of these are included and and both of them are mentioned there. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so, so there's a, scripture here is defining the boundaries of the saved community, of who's in and who's out. And then Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. So the people that Paul is writing to, the people that Paul is writing to, they were these people. But they've been called out of that. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Okay? So that, that's, that's a, that's one helpful passage there that talks about uh, different kinds of sexual sins. Hebrews 13, 4. 
Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, we're not sure. It doesn't say. It's not Paul. In Hebrews 13.4, we read, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Okay, the sexual, that latter term is that porneos, which is the, the umbrella term. Ephesians 5.5 5 is another good place. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, porneos, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Okay, again, a, a defining of the boundaries of what it means to be within the fellowship of Christ. Now, further down in that same chapter, Paul lays this out a little more uh, in a more complicated way. This is Galatians five, nineteen through 21. He writes, The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, well, that's the umbrella term, impurity, sensuality, the term there for sensuality, the only other place that's used in the New Testament is when Peter's talking about the prevailing conditions in the city of Sodom. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who make a practice of doing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's an important point to get here. You know, when when you walk into this sanctuary, you've walked under a sign that is uh, that declares that we are a fellowship of sinners. One of the things that we recognize here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church is that we are all, we're all sinners. And that includes Christians, that Christians continue to sin. In Galatians 5, Paul, however, makes a distinction between the individual who falls in a sin and then repents of it or regrets it or tries to move away from it or struggles with it and those who make a practice of it. Those who make a practice of doing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, there's a difference between committing adultery and being committed to being an adulterer. Those, those are two different things. I mean, we actually had a situation here in this congregation uh, of a man who was in an adulterous situation and uh, was fine with that. And the, the session confronted him, uh, and he's like, I'm fine with this. This is not... You know, leave me alone. And so he was removed from, from this church. Okay, this is within the last two years. Alright? So there's, there's a difference between someone who falls into sin and someone who says, hey, this is who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with it. Okay? So, so what, what Paul's talking about here are not people who, who have fallen into sin, but people who are in sin and Intend to remain there. Alright, so I just want to make that clear. Those who make a practice of doing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think all of us, uh, are guilty of fits of anger and, uh, impurity and, and these other things that are in this list. But if you are committed to being an angry dude, and you're like, well that's just who I am, and you better get used to it, 
I think scripture teaches that you are then outside of the body of Christ. Okay. All right. Uh, Romans 1, chapter 26 and 27. This is a passage that I find very frightening. And we've talked about it a number of times. I, 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 it is for me uh, the most one of the most frightening ideas uh, in scripture. And this is the idea of God simply turning people over. Of no longer contending with people. This is Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He's talking about people who are already in a pattern of sin and he gives them up. He just, he gives up on them. He, he no longer struggles with them. Okay. People who are born again, people who've been converted will continue to sin. Okay. We do. Okay. Born again, Christian people continued to sin, but our relationship to that sin is different. We struggle with it. We fight against it. All right. That's different from marching in a parade celebrating my sin. Those are two different things. All right. So for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. Here, Paul uh, uh, grounds uh, uh, this teaching regarding sexuality in the created order, in what is in what is in what is natural. All right, and Paul here is teaching that this is God simply giving up on certain people. And just leaves them to go. The end of the line we see discussed in uh, Revelations chapter 21 verse 8. This is this is the Apostle John's vision. I mean, some of you have got uh, some kind of animus against Paul. So I'm, gonna, I'm reading you other apostles who say the exact same thing. The Apostle John uh, writing uh, in Romans 21 8. But the cowardly, I love that one. Unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the end of the line. Jude says the same thing, by the way. Jude, the brother of Jesus. We only have a little letter from him. Jude writes, this is Jude 1, 7. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay. So these are people who are outside of the community. And so here at the Council of Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council of the church, when the questions of what does it mean to be a Christian are being wrestled with, what parts of the Old Testament law still apply today, the church has defined itself from, from the very beginning as including these sexual boundaries. Scripture is very clear that sex has a place within creation, that sex is intended uh, to be enjoyed between uh, one man and one woman in the context of marriage. All other options are off the table for those who are in uh, the family of God. So that's the teaching of Scripture. And in the first ecumenical council, you have an affirmation of that teaching. We belong to an organization called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. 
Uh, our organization has been around since 1981. Um, our church has also had to wrestle with this question uh, of sexuality because uh, our culture at this present moment is returning to a pre-Christian time. Okay, the culture is re-paganizing. I mean, essentially what we're seeing is, is that there, there had been a period when uh, Christian uh, teaching, Christian moral teaching on sexuality had dominated in the public sphere. That time is gone. Okay, so we're, we're, not, we're not moving forward. We're actually moving backwards. We're moving backwards to a time before the teaching of the church. We're moving to the pre-Christian point of view in our contemporary culture. And, and so, again, the church has to speak on this. Um, I have on the on the back table there next to uh, the collection plate the position paper on homosexuality from the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. This is a document that was uh, developed again like in a conference like we got together and people talked about it and they they argued about it first in 1996 and then reaffirmed in 19 uh, 1986 and then reaffirmed in 1994. Let me just read you the the four points conclusion. It's a, it's a rather elaborate document and very closely uh, argued. But let me just give you kind of the, the conclusions. Number one, the Bible clearly states that homosexual behavior is a sin. Now, we, we need to distinguish between same-sex desire and behavior. Okay, Scripture never says that having same-sex attraction is a sin. Scripture repeatedly and uniformly and consistently teaches that homosexual behavior is a sin. So that's point number one. Point number two, God forgives repentant sinners. As Christians who are ourselves sinners redeemed by the grace of God, we must reach out to those people who are struggling with homosexuality, offering them a word of hope that is the gospel to the end that they may experience true wholeness through the freeing, renewing grace of God in Jesus Christ. Point number two. Point number three, unrepentant homosexual behavior is incompatible with the confession of Jesus as Lord, which is required of members of the EPC. In other words, unrepentant homosexuals cannot be a member of an evangelical Presbyterian church. We understand that as putting them outside uh, of the Christian family, okay? They can come to church. We can invite them to follow Christ and to change their behavior. But if they're in that behavior and they're unrepentant about it, they, they cannot be received as members of this church. And fourth, unrepentant homosexual behavior is incompatible with the ordination vows of the office of deacon, ruling elder, or teaching elder. So so a practicing homosexual may not uh, serve in the offices uh, of this church. This was, this was uh, one of the uh, reasons that prompted us to leave our former denomination, which does uh, affirm that uh, a practicing homosexual can uh, be in the pulpit. We say that, that that's not possible. Okay, So th- these are situations where the church is defining its boundaries. And this is something that the the, that the church has always uh, done. We see that the, uh, the, the, the boundaries on sexual behavior are included there in the very first ecumenical council of the church. From the very beginning, this has been the uniform 
teaching of the church. Of course, it, it can, it's a continuation of the teaching of what the synagogues had taught for 1,500 years prior as well. Okay, so we we stand uh, in, in a long tradition of affirming uh, God's intention that sex be bounded uh, within marriages between between men uh, and women. Some of you. Uh, have uh, caught wind of the Equality Act, which passed uh, the House uh, last uh, week, I think it was. Um, Ed Stetzer, who is uh, an editor at Christianity Today, and um, he writes in an article that is on on their website right now. I don't know if it's in, in print version. He writes, the Equality Act is the most significant threat to religious liberty in a generation. Now, I think he's wrong. I think it's the most significant threat to religious liberty in the history of this republic. It is literally the worst law, if it becomes a law, that has ever been enacted in the history of the United States vis-a-vis the church. This church will cease to exist under that law. That school will cease to exist under that law. On Friday, I wrote to the Pennsylvania senator saying, please don't vote for this thing when it comes over to the Senate chamber. Okay, so it's passed the House. The smart money is saying it's not going to pass uh, uh, the Senate. Uh, what this law does is uh, forces churches to assimilate to the culture, to bow the knee to the rainbow altar and say that we will say in here, what the world says out there, or or you'll just be sued out of existence. Okay, so it, this is a challenge that we'll face. Uh, we've faced other challenges. The assurances of Jesus Christ is that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, there will always be a church uh, in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy on us. We thank you for your law, which shows us uh, how it is that we're supposed to live. Uh, we thank you for the, the teachings of the apostles who've gone before us, for Brother Paul and Brother John and Brother Peter and Brother Jude. We pray that uh, we would continue to stand in the teachings of the apostles and that you would continue to keep us safe uh, within the fold of the church. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.